Welcome to Profiles from WFIU. I'm Aaron Kane. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and public figures to get to know the stories behind their work. Our guest today is Eduardo Brondizio. He's a distinguished professor of anthropology at Indiana University Bloomington, where he directs the Center for the Analysis of Social Ecological Landscapes. At the center, Brondizio has helped to create a research program in environmental anthropology. His work focuses on understanding rural and urban populations and landscapes in the Amazon. For more than 30 years, Brondizio has studied farmers and households in eastern Amazonia to see how they're interacting with everything from commodity markets to social movements to climate change. Through his work, Brondizio makes the case that the Amazon is a prime example of how complex and dynamic a region can be, that landscapes are shaped by social, ecological, political, historical, and economic factors, and defy simplistic interpretations and one-size-fits-all solutions. Recently, Eduardo Brondizio joined me for a conversation in the WFIU studios. Eduardo Brondizio, welcome to Profiles. Thank you, Aaron. It's such a pleasure to be here. You live in Bloomington, Indiana, but your work has taken you all around the world pretty regularly, probably most often to South America. So could we begin where you began in Sao Paulo, Brazil? What was it like growing up there? Yeah, I grew up in a city called São José dos Campos, which is an hour from São Paulo in a very important industrial center in Brazil. My family comes from the rural areas of the region. So I grew up in between that transition that Brazil was going through during the 60s and 70s, major changes in the country. And my life was basically between the rural areas where we have our family roots and urban areas where my parents were working. So I grew up in a country that was transforming really fast and enjoying that bridge between its agrarian past, so to speak, and its emerging urban reality. So did that change track with your life as you grew up, or were you kind of experiencing rural and the growing urban back and forth as you were aging? Back and forth. It's something really interesting that we can talk about later, how that connects to my own work. But family relationships and community relationships are really strong. So when you have that transition as people are moving from the interior to find job in the cities, we were sort of a hub of a network of families that were coming from the small towns where we grew up to the cities like San José dos Campos. So we had, we kept that connection the whole time as we do it today. And today my parents and others come back to the same places where we grew up. So it's a great time. As you think about it now, that close family connection that you mentioned, do you chalk that up to cultural difference? Is that just Brazil, or was that a reaction to the rapid change that was happening in the 60s when you were growing up, coming together like that? Yeah, I think both things. I mean, social relations in Brazil are really important. We have very extended families and family social relations that provide support in a rural environment. That's what makes life better and easier. And it's interesting as members of families go to cities and start to, you know, find new ways and new opportunities, those connections become equally strong and and they change in nature, of course. That's something that I still keep and I try to bring my daughters today to Brazil to understand their roots and also, you know, how 
they are part of this broader history of social change and family change that happens along with it. What's their reaction when they see that, when they go there? We are very close to our families in Brazil. They grew up from, you know, early age. They were born in Bloomington. They're Bloomingtonians. But they used to do field work with us all the time. So we spent several months in Brazil. So they're very much part of that network. That network just became bigger. You know, now we are here, and they are part also of an extended network that goes back all the way to the interior of Sao Paulo. You mentioned in your early life uh, there was a strong rural component. Now, the attachment with the land, with the natural world that can come with that rural lifestyle, was that what originally drew you to agronomic engineering when you were in your early academic life in Sao Paulo? I think that was part of it. I think when I started my undergraduate in agronomy, what I was looking for was a way of bridging that kind of work to be in nature and to be working with people on the land, but also to have an opportunity to learn and to you know, sort of have a job that allows me to go between office and the outdoors. And so that was a very important component. But what really motivated me was to understand the transformation of rural Brazil. That was sort of my saying, and, and that's what it connects to my own family history. My family comes, uh, both great-grandparents came as immigrants in the late 19th century. So we have the whole agrarian part of the history. As Brazil becomes industrialized, like my parents move to the city. And the city is transforming along the transformation of Brazil. And that question about how is the transformation of rural Brazil take place? What's the place of rural families, rural communities in a transforming economy that is moving more and more to an industrialized economy. So my interest, and I think that got me through agronomy, and actually when I finished my degree, I was very much doing more like a rural sociology kind of research than agricultural research per se, because I was interested in understanding the place of the farmer, in particular the small farmer, and how do communities that are rural communities interact with a transforming society? What's their place? What happens? how those landscapes transformed. So that was my entry point, so to speak. Do you remember some of your early conclusions about that? What I mean is your work, of course, has expanded upon that idea that, well, we're talking about an environment and we're talking about agriculture, but we're really talking about people. We're talking about societies. Do you remember thinking something early on, like an an aha moment about, oh, wow, I see a connection here. I see something that's going to lead me to the next thing. Because the next thing, which we'll talk about in a minute, was quite a leap, literally. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, some of the things that come to attention at that time, the environmental impacts of that process were huge and largely invisible. So along with that social transformation, you had an environmental transformation that was going, but in a way that people were not paying attention to. So the consequence of that change also had that dimension. And I tried to call attention to that at that time. You had a large sector of particularly small farmers that were very invisible in that process. You know, they're taken for granted in a process of development as something to spare almost. So to me, that was that caught my attention a lot. You had small communities, communities that had long intergenerational connection to the land that were basically wiped out in a process of expanding infrastructure, economic systems, industrialization, and so forth. So... That guided a lot of my work after that in the sense of 
really understand the place of small farmers and their contribution to Brazil, because there was largely, as I said, invisible in the context of a country and a narrative of development at the time, you know, a military dictatorship narrative of development that was basically focusing on economic development and disregarding to these other sectors of societies that were very important, but secondary, I guess. After you got your degree in agronomic engineering, you also earned a certificate in remote sensing yeah. at the National Institute for Space Research in Sao yeah. Paulo. Now, where you earned the certificate is a good clue to the definition of the term. It's one I had to look up. So what is remote sensing, and how did you first become involved with it? Yeah. Remote sensing is the use of a technology, a sensor, right, to collect data from afar. So when you do with a camera or a satellite, or air photography, or other instruments, you're doing remote sensing. And that was a really interesting opportunity that I had at that time. When I was finishing my degree, we were required to have a one-year internship. Most of the week, we were working, not in school, but doing actual research. And what happened at the time is that I got a, an internship with the planning department of my city. And there, I had a chance to start working with air photography particularly in rural areas. So I developed that kind of training to understand what's happening to the landscape of a municipality in that case through a bird's eye, so to speak. And that raised that question about linking what I would see on the ground, how families were working, making decisions, changing, being affected by different processes, and capture that from a landscape perspective. So how do you connect the reality of people on the ground to the broader transformation of the environment and the landscape. And that guided me my next step, because I had a chance at that time, I was working, I was founding member of a foundation that became the largest NGO in Brazil, called the SUS Atlantic Forest Foundation. It was the first NGO to have a technical team, and I was part of that first group. The mission of that NGO was to raised the question about the almost total destruction of the Atlantic forest in Brazil, which is one of the most diverse ecosystems on the planet. And that started connecting me with those different pieces. So to understand what's happening to the forest, you need to understand how those larger processes of development are taking place, how they interact with people on the ground, how people react, what kinds of decisions they make, and how that transforms the landscape. So I was linking this experience of having studied agriculture to understand and use a tool like remote sensing, and that opened to me a whole new set of questions. I'm also wondering how it did with the answers. This may seem like a peculiar question, but this link between what's happening on the ground and what you're observing from distance, when do you know you've proven what? In other words, at what point did you say, ah, this thing that's happening on the ground is evidence of what I'm seeing from the air and vice versa. How do you make that connection that you're talking about? That's a really good question. And that is a very key social science question. How the larger decisions of policies, large centralized decisions for infrastructural development, for economic incentive, what are their role in transforming large landscapes? How do they interact with the different actors on the ground, being small families or large corporations or whole communities, how do that process interact to create a transformation? And that's the kind of large question that interests me. 
how those broader decisions, the policy decisions, the large market forces and so forth, create the conditions in which people respond to, but also shape those conditions. And what we observe on the landscape is the outcome of those two processes, so to speak. That's the sort of direction that my research took. How do we understand the process of development that happened in other parts of Brazil and was moving strong to the Amazon and how that interacts with people on the ground? How can we observe it both from the perspective of the people who are being affected and affecting those changes, but also from the perspective of the larger regional change that is taking place? What was the first time that you went to the Amazon? Do you remember your first experience there? Oh, yeah, very well. It was in mid-1988. I had done research on the Amazon before that, but from afar, mostly from a remote sensing perspective. At that time, I had a very unique opportunity with my wife, in fact. A professor from IU, Emilio Moran, an anthropologist here, was teaching a course in the Amazon on the human ecology of the Amazon. That was my introduction to cultural ecology, this area of anthropology that usually we call to the environmental anthropology or evolved from cultural ecology. And that opened the opportunity to go for a month for a very intensive course on cultural ecology. And from there, we had a chance to go to do some field work. And we went to the Marajó Island. I still work there today. And he started to do an exploratory ethnographic research with uh, riverine populations, trying to understand you know, how they were adapting and changing to the transformations that were taking place in the region. That was my first time going to the field. I you know, used to do a lot of field work in southern Brazil with communities living in the Atlantic Forest. But that took me to the Amazon and became fascinated since that time. You mentioned the communities reacting to the transformations that were happening just so that we understand and have a detailed picture, what sort of transformations are we talking about here? Well, if you think about Brazil globally, Brazil encapsulates what we call the great acceleration that has taken place globally since the Second World War, which means great expansion of economic activities, of frontiers, of infrastructure, of consumption, of production, and so forth. And Brazil very much matches that kind of transformation. So especially when you start to have a military dictatorship in 1964, the government put in motion a number of so-called development processes, of road construction, industrialization, energy infrastructure, you know, a series of land reform policies, a series of agricultural expansion policies, policies that have real effects on people on the ground. And so that was taking place very fast. At the same time, you have a process of urbanization that is taking place in Brazil. So Brazil was virtually a, a rural area, a rural country in the 1950s. It's over 50% of the population living that. In 30 years, you almost have a reversal of that. Even Sao Paulo and Rio, which have a, a long history of occupation and economic development and so forth, only during the 1970s, you start to have roads connecting the coast of Sao Paulo and Rio. And that's an area where I did my work initially, where you had lots of rural communities, lots of fishing communities, like hundreds and hundreds of them. So you think about a situation like that. You have a new road that opens a prime area 
for tourism and economic development and so forth, where you have thousands of communities that have customary rights to the land or that live very much in a subsistence sort of economy. So imagine the transformation that takes place when this kind of process happens. You know, new roads, new laws, new ways of distributing lands and incentives and so forth. So that's the kind of transformation that I was observing and trying to understand what's the place of rural communities in this process of a changing society. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. Our guest today is Eduardo Brondizio, professor of anthropology at Indiana University, Bloomington. You mentioned the Great Acceleration, which is one of the terms that one has to unpack when having a conversation about your work. And part of your job is discussing the Great Acceleration and its effects with people like you who know all about it. Another part of your job is explaining it to people like me who don't. (laughs) I'm just wondering if we collectively have a problem coming to terms with the notion of the Great Acceleration, since few people who are alive today have ever known life on Earth to operate in any other manner than the way it did Mm -hmm. before the end of the Second World War? Are people aware of it? Or do you find that a lot of your time is spent helping people appreciate that it really does exist and it really is happening? I think both things. I think people are aware of it intuitively because when you look across generations, the first comment that you see is how much things have changed during my lifetime. I hear my daughter say that, and they are, you know, 20 years old or 16 years old, which means that you have exponential change that is happening at a rate that never happened before. And when you look over a period of 250 years, for instance, many of the indicators that we look at in terms of production, consumption, technology, on a number of fronts, they are more or less stable. They grow at a very slow rate until you get after the Second World War. So with a number of changes that happened at that time and with the expansion of the development and modernization ideas that fed into that, you move from a rate of change that is relatively slow to a rate of change that is exponential. When you summarize the indicators of population indicators, infrastructure, energy, consumption, what you see is that fast change in the way the world works. And that's what we call the Great Acceleration, because since that time, you start to have you know, an exponential rate. Things double every few years, and we haven't stopped. Now, I hope you don't mind if I do this, but I'm going to, in a conversation with you, cite you. <laughs> in, in 2015, you said that a lot of academic disciplines don't know how to reconcile their areas of specialization with the overarching realities of the Great Acceleration. So a few years later, how do you feel about that now? Since things are continuously accelerating, a lot must have happened in those few years since you said that. So do you feel the same way? Do you notice any changes in how we're grappling with the term? Well, we still struggle with, in the case of academic structures that were not developed to deal with complex problems, you know, like caused by the current situation that we have. But one thing that I have noticed, and you see that in just a few years, is that there's that awareness and openness to understanding those problems in a collaborative way. 
I think people are much less about maintaining boundaries about their disciplines and much more thinking about what's the contribution of my disciplines to understand a broader problem. And I think I use a good example of that. You have a lot of groups that are collaborating across departments, collaborating on issues. And yes, I think there are changes. We're seeing faster and faster changes in terms of the way we adapt our contribution, our piece of a more complex puzzle. Another term that we should probably unpack relatively early on in this conversation is Anthropocene. What does Anthropocene mean? Or maybe it's better to ask, what does it mean to you? So the Anthropocene, you can see it as a technical term, the term that actually emerged in the year 2000 only. There are many other terms that have been used in similar ways, but this particular term comes about in the year 2000, so it's a really recent term. And it evolved to have different meanings. So the general meaning of the Anthropocene is a proposal for rethinking how we divide our geological eras so that we recognize that the functioning of the Earth system has become intrinsically dependent on what we do as humans. So there's that aspect of it, of trying to think about a new geological era, which means that recognizing that we have markers that are lasting on the planet. And that has been what people are trying to do, understanding those markers. And that brings us again to 1950 and to that period, because that's when you start to have markers like atomic signals or aluminum, concrete, plastics, and different types of chemicals and different sort of physical imprints that we put on the planet and greenhouse gases and so forth that become lasting markers. But that is an ongoing discussion from the technical perspective. On the other hand, the term encapsulates all that change that we see around us, but don't know exactly how to explain. You know, so it's a term that brings together a recognition that we have become intrinsically connected to the planet and through the planet to each other because we have affected the planet so much that we depend much more on collaborating with each other to understand those problems and to solve those problems. I did an article a few years ago where we do an evaluation of the use of the term. You have an explosion of the use of the term. First, in the natural science, that's where it started, because people start dealing with a way of explaining global change and the scale of human impact on the planet. And then very soon, it starts to get to the social science and then to the humanities, and to the arts, and then to pop culture. So it's a term that encapsulated our, our sense, you know, that we do have a global presence and that we make a difference at a global level, and we can make a difference also solving global problems. Just hearing that description from you makes me come to what's probably a pretty unsophisticated conclusion, which is that you could maybe describe also the Anthropocene as that geological era when the Great Acceleration started. Yes, and that's where the markers converge, because when the geological community is looking for markers, they're looking for you know long-lasting markers. So when you look at the analysis of data for all those different things, materials and chemicals and you know atomic particles and so forth, it's about during the 1950s that you see that signal very clear. And those things have continued to change. So you look at all those signals, you look at plastics, aluminum, or, I don't know, cement, 
and you continue to see uh, an expansion of that in the years that follow. And that's something that interests me a lot, you know, the global displacement of that process. And that's something we're dealing with now in an interesting way and creates a lot of political challenges. Because when you look at the expansion of human activities, and I'm using human activities broadly here, what you see is that you have a process of expansion of resource use and pollution and population and so forth that happens first in so-called global north during that period. So you have that extreme acceleration of environmental degradation and all sorts of other indicators that happens in the global north. Then after the 1970s and 80s, you start to shift that to other parts of the planet. And that brings together my story of Brazil here. Brazil at that time was sort of picking up, accelerating its expansion of agricultural frontiers, of industries, of pollution, and so forth, where European countries and North American countries were sort of slowing down. So you have a shift of that process to other parts of the globe, which you start to see that same acceleration at the same rate when countries like the U.S. or Japan or parts of Western Europe were seeing a stabilization of some of those issues. The Amazon comes in the wake of that process. So I have a, a figure that I use to show the Great Amazon Acceleration, which starts in the 1970s and then picks up. So if you're following the process, we have an aggregate global acceleration, an acceleration that is much stronger in the global north in terms of all those social, economic, and environmental indicators, starts to move to the global south. You know, Latin America and Asia become places where all those economic activities are expanding and now progressively is moving to different parts of Africa. So you have a global displacement of expansion of economic activities and expansion of environmental impacts that together form an acceleration that you observe globally, but is very regionally differentiated and has very different regional implications, both social and environmental. I wonder if you and I could take a moment to scrutinize that shift a little bit more closely mm -hmm. and the time before it, because much of your work centers around the changes in the environment of the Brazilian rainforest and all of the factors that bring about that change, climatological, social, economic factors, many of those, of course, in the last few years have been extensive. But could you take us back really as far as you'd like in the history of the region so that we can understand when that shift happened from the global north to the global south so that we have an even more detailed understanding of how what's happening in the Amazon embodies these concepts of the Anthropocene and the Great Acceleration? Yeah, a great question. The Amazon is a region where you had a very large native population, very complex native population, with large-scale social systems and production systems and agriculture and so forth, which has experienced a decline and, of course, a collapse right after the European occupation of the region, after the 1500s, particularly after the 1600s. So what you have at that time is that all the floodplains of the main rivers and the main river were occupied heavily and densely populated. That process leads to a collapse. And then you have indigenous population moving north and south of the main rivers to areas that are more isolated. Hold that thought, because that's a very important part of the story. 
they got out of the way of that period of colonization and out of sight. Then you have, after that, a series of economic booms and policy interventions by the Spanish for one time and the Portuguese for another side that, you know, basically puts the Amazon on the map of economic and trade of resources and so forth. And the Amazon is the center of origins of dozens and dozens of fruits and crops. So the Amazon had a plenty of resources. You have the imaginary of the Eldorado of the region. So that itself has been a long-standing way that the region has that richness that is there to be captured. One of the first larger economic cycles that you have is the cacao, which is already in the 1700s. So the Amazon was already part of a global market at that time. And many other cycles, of course, uh, fur and other things. And then it comes the rubber cycle. So the rubber cycle was one of the largest economic periods for the region, for Brazil as a whole. Starts around the 1850s, and it goes all the way to 1910. So that time... What you have, you know, you have a consolidation of a system of extraction of resource from the region by sterner or absentee sorts of landlords using slave-based system or close to it for producing richness for others and for the outside. So you have this long history of appropriation of resources and submission of the population of the Amazon that goes back centuries. Okay, so in 1910, the rubber boom collapses. And almost in one year, it collapses. And why did it collapse? It collapsed because of what we call today biopiracy. And that happens in different parts with different crops. is in itself a topic that is really interesting. But you had very active sourcing of genetic material. In this case, England taking rubber. So the rubber tappers were distributed along the rivers and so forth to tap this natural occurrence of the rubber tree. And they take it to Malaysia, I believe, and develop plantations. And were able to establish plantations in several parts of Asia that were enough to provide to a very stable market. And it's closer, it's cheaper. Closer, cheaper, controlled, and so forth. So that led to a collapse. One of the largest economy that suddenly pop, collapsed. It's interesting because you look at the rich today, you see similar issues that you had in extreme wealth and extreme poverty, sort of the opposites side by side. But basically the idea of appropriating resources from the region. You have smaller economic periods. You have during the war, for instance, there's a lot of investment from the U.S., from Henry Ford and others who were trying to get rubber again, from the region because of war strategic issues. But then it stays more or less quiet, right? What happened then is that around 1930, 1940s, the Brazilian government starts to have a concern about integrating the region with the rest of Brazil. And so you have the initial plans of connecting and creating infrastructure to connect the Amazon to Brazil around that time. But then with the military... You know, the region become very strategic. For one thing is that you had the perception that there was a lot of interest on the mining resources of the region. So when the military see the U.S. and other countries surveying, you know, the, <laughs> the mineral riches of the Amazon. They pay attention. 
they'll pay attention and they start using satellite technology and radar technology at the time. So the Amazon became very central geopolitically to the vision of the military in Brazil during the 60s. And Brazil was very centralized, it was a military dictatorship. So that sets a plan to integrate the Amazon in Brazil and to bring colonists you know, and economic activities to occupy the region. At the time, the vision of the region, which again reflects in the kinds of situations that we see today, was that it was an empty region. And the motto at the time was a land without people for people without land. So indigenous populations were invisible and not considered as part of the region. This road network system now goes and it starts cutting across all the indigenous areas that have been isolated since the initial colonial period. In the 16th century. In the 16th century. Wow. So now you have a system of about four major roads that cut the region east to west and north to south with uh, organized and centralized plan for building cities, constructing rural villages, and developing what became famous in the Amazon, the fishbone pattern of small-scale settlements, right? So a main road and then feeder roads that cut perpendicular to a main road that was the design of bringing new farmers to the region. That's happening very fast, between 1965 and 1972 or so. So the region transformed to have major roads, huge amount of fiscal investment in the region, and then having the idea that we need to bring people to the Amazon because we need to protect frontiers. But also in other parts of Brazil, you had drought and a whole sector of the population in the northeast and other parts that had no land, you know, sort of uh, landless poor, and in many cases affected by drought. So it was a way of alleviating some of those social problems and meeting a strategic goal. The beginning of the acceleration of the Amazon is that it was planned, it was put on paper very fast, and the vision, you know, was a combination of a vision of developing it from an agricultural perspective, but also to open the ways for the vast wealth of the region, the mining resources, the logging and everything else, and land in itself. So that sets in motion a whole process that still today we are seeing the development of it. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. I'm Aaron Kane. I'm speaking with Eduardo Brondizio, professor of anthropology and director of the Center for the Analysis of Social-Ecological Landscapes at Indiana University. It seems to me that your work and how you approach your work is an excellent example of how, if you really want to understand the big picture, you need to try to understand all the smaller pictures that combine to make the big picture. And something you researched and wrote about a few years back does that. It addresses a lot of these issues you're talking about, rural development and farming and sustainability and globalization and social identity and more besides by telling the story of one type of fruit that uh, many in North America will only be aware of as an exotic ingredient in their smoothie, maybe. (laughs) Uh, So would you mind telling us a little bit of the story of the humble acai? The acai, yes. I mean, that's... um Part of my story, I guess. 
Assai is a really good example of both the invisibility of the Amazonian people, the invisibility of the potential of Amazonian biodiversity. At the same time, the power of transformation that people can make when they have the opportunity. And I'll explain that in terms of the farmers who produce acai. But I'll tell a little story that I think is a really interesting story when I first came in contact with acai. So acai is a staple food in this part of the Amazon. It has been part of local diet for millennia. And so forth, it was restricted to that region. And when I started working in that area and then living there and working extensively there, and then once I was visiting, you know, going through a river to do an interview in a family far away with one of my colleagues, a colleague who I respect a lot, but he's from the region. And we're looking at this forest, which looked like a forest, you know, which had some banana trees and other fruit trees, a lot of acai trees and other trees. And I made a comment that, you know, I said, this was a planted forest. This forest was planted. And it looks like a native forest. And we had that argument because he wouldn't accept that, that, you know, this is not a planted forest. This is just a native forest and so forth. And that became a really important turning point for me because what I start to see is that I was looking into, in my view, and I did my whole research around it, what I thought was a production system that was put in place intentionally, locally, based on local technology. And that's a food production system right here. And he couldn't see that as a production system, but see as a forest. What became very clear is that we have very different conceptions about what is an agricultural system. What is productive land? And that became very important to me. And what is the importance of the people creating that and how much they are recognized or not as creating a production system in a forest? Açaí is still now talked about in Brazil as an extractivist system. Now, what's that exactly? An extractive system, which is part of the long Amazonian history, is a system where you take and you benefit from what nature provides you, basically. You don't cultivate. You don't cultivate, right? The extractivist, which is the social category that, you know, belongs to those who extract, is a widely used social category in Brazil. And that bothered me a lot when I saw that, okay, the people who are producing acai fruit and managing producing food out of a forest are called extractivists. And that's a social category that has a lot of weight because it translates into a passive person who waits for the fruit to fall, so to speak. Like you manna know? from heaven. Manna from heaven. And that takes away one's knowledge, one's intentions and actions and contribution to the economy and to everything else. So I'm telling this story because that became a really important part of it. When I start to study acai, I want to study it from the perspective of the people producing it, to understand the, what do they do, how do they see, how do they produce, and how their own knowledge and the technology that they use change the productivity of an area. What captured me was that I was seeing here a very important food product that was gaining importance regionally already at that time, the late 1980s, early 1990s, that was heavily produced, but not recognized as such. 
So that's one part of the story. The other part of the story is, so acai was uh, basically a local product, only consumed locally in some parts of the Amazon. During the 1970s, you have an economic period that was very much focused on the extraction of the heart of palm. So with the heart of palm, which is the same plant as the acai tree, you cut the palm, you extract the heart, and that's it. You know, you send to factories. And there was a major issue in the region during the 70s and parts of the 80s with the over-extraction and basically destruction of the whole forest of acai because of the heart of palm. In the 1980s, with the rise of the urbanization of the Amazon, so people start moving to urban areas and so forth, acai as a food source started to become very important in urban areas. Acai became a very important product already in the 1980s. And during that time, it had the biggest expansion in production. There was supplying food for large areas of the Amazon. And what was happening at that time is that acai and other fruits, the early 1990s, start to gain presence in other parts of Brazil. It was virtually unknown in Brazil. Even in Brazil? In Brazil, in the 1990s. So it gets to the mid-1990s, it becomes very popular in Rio among surfers and among jiu-jitsu practitioners. Uh, and then it get into a sort of a use soap opera. Soap operas are very strong in Brazil. And once it gets to that point, it really spreads like fire. So you have this huge market demand for SAE. And then very quickly it became industrialized. And by the end of the 1990s, it was gaining international market. So it's a very fast process of globalization. Now you have an enormous economy that is forest-based, that is very inclusive because you have local producers producing the fruit and gaining for it, transforming the region, but it's still not recognized as an agricultural product, but recognized as an extractivist product. And that has a lot of implications because if it is an extractivist problem, people still see the forest as a native forest. They'll see the producer as a passive person waiting to harvest from that forest. So it had a lot of implications at that time. For instance, small producers who did not have land title, a lot of this process was sharecropping-based. They couldn't claim that they were working the land to have land rights because the way you know banks and the legal system and policymakers would see acai production was as an extractivist system. The same way with bank credit, for instance. You know, at that time, they couldn't receive bank credit to invest in their farms in the SAE production because it was not recognized as a production system. It's a fascinating story because it brings all those pieces together. It brings the invisibility of local production systems or farmers, Amazonian farmers, what I call forest farmers, that contribute enormously to the economy, that allow the expansion of SAE production to the regional market, to the national market, and now to the global market, and is still not being recognized for that. Today, acai is the most important fruit product of the Amazon, and is a production system that shows that you can actually have very successful production and still maintain a forest. It shows the potential that local knowledge and managing the biodiversity that you have in the region and make it 
an economic system that is inclusive is possible and provides a different way for us to look at how agriculture and food production and forest protection can come together in the region. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. Our guest today is anthropology professor Eduardo Brondizio, whose work focuses on the populations and landscapes of the Amazon. Could you talk a bit about what's been happening in the Amazon more recently? I understand that the deforestation there seems to be accelerating radically under Brazil's president, Jair Bolsonaro. Approximately 1,700 square miles of forest were cleared in the first seven months of 2019 since the beginning of Bolsonaro's administration. That's, I think, 60% more than the same period in 2018. Mm -hmm. That's about 250 square miles per month. That works out to a little more than one Chicago every month disappearing from the rainforest. Well, I wish we were talking about a different trajectory, right? Then we're talking about deforestation now. Because when you look at the history of deforestation in the region, it started to go up with the integration plan in the 1970s. So you have very high rates of deforestation during the 70s. It picks up significantly during the 1980s. And then you have a period of more or less stabilization because of the economic crisis that happens during that time. So between mid-1980s and mid-1990s, Deforestation was happening, but land abandonment was happening even faster than deforestation at that time. But then you have, you know, a new phase, which starts with a combination of the economic recovery of Brazil and demands in China and Europe for soy and for other crops. So after the mid-1990s, you start to have this really fast expansion that got to its peak around 2004, 2005, which was many times of what it is today. And so so just to be clear, the deforestation is for growing things that aren't indigenous. We're not talking about acai here. We're talking about just getting the lands that you can use for ranging cattle or growing other things. Yeah, the vast majority of the deforestation has been open for pasture and then progressively for other crops, soybean and other crops as well. But pasture dominates and in general, a very unproductive pasture. So a lot of it has been for opening areas. A lot of the process is related to capturing land. So deforestation has been seen in Brazil as a land improvement. And the very concept of productive land is a concept tied to deforestation. So deforestation has this social value that people see it as part of development, as part of making a land productive, and so forth. Protection, and for many of those cases, are secondary. Anyhow, back to the timeline. By 2004, 2005, it became very clear and very loud that the scale of deforestation was at a pace that was concerning on all terms, not only in terms of biodiversity, but in terms of its impact on indigenous population, its greenhouse impact and so forth and so forth. So at that time, the Brazilian government puts in place a very aggressive plan for monitoring, for enforcement, and to look for alternative ways of using the land and for implementing protected areas and indigenous lands. And that plan works very well. 
So when you look in the context of today, Brazil was able to decrease deforestation rates by close to 80%. So it's an extremely successful plan in a period of five years to come to a point of reducing deforestation drastically, implementing conservation areas and recognizing indigenous areas, you know, many folds than it was just 10 years ago. So by 2010, we had about 40% of the region protected in protected areas and indigenous reserves, which is very important in themselves. We had deforestation reduced by about 80%, and you had a transition of the large-scale agricultural sector to improve the productivity of the land instead of a more expensive and extensive use of the land. So we're moving to a place where we're finding a pathway for the region to reconcile, to stop deforestation, to recognize indigenous lands, to find alternative modes of production, and to improve the productivity of the agricultural sector. It was a moment when people would see a much brighter future and a much more conciliatory way of looking at economic development, conservation, indigenous rights, and so forth. What is unfortunate today is that all those advances and the new ideas about how to use the region, how to you know, responsibly develop that region, we see a reversal of that with the rise of the movement that led to Bolsonaro, already in the Labour Party government, by 2010, 2011, you start to see a reversal of that, empowering the large-scale agricultural sector to expand in terms of land, to move away from a development view, which you know at the time was a social-environmental development view, to reconcile those things, to a more developmentist type of view. So you start to see that trend, and Bolsonaro basically, you know, with his rhetoric and his view of uh, expropriating the resources of the region and disrespecting indigenous rights and so forth, he just put fuel into a process where a lot of opportunistic actors and illegal actors take advantage of. What are some ways that we could do something more like they were doing in the early 21st century, dealing with deforestation in Brazil? What are some ways that we can promote economic growth while safeguarding environmental health and safeguarding social justice? That narrative of economic growth became an end in itself for justifying that we should deforest the Amazon, we should occupy indigenous areas to do mining, and stop monitoring pollution or pesticides. So all those things that have been put in place, they are the ways in which they promote economic development, right? So economic development becomes an end in itself in the political narratives of Bolsonaro and and others, saying that environmental and human rights are stumble blocks to development, right? And the other context was the release of the global assessment on biodiversity and ecosystem service. And the global assessment is sort of a very sobering picture of the outcomes of 60 years of a mode of economic development that's more concerned with growth than quality and distribution. And when you look in an aggregated way, when you look at the great acceleration, you look at the indicators of development, you see a decline in all environmental indicators 
but a very uneven transformation to economic growth. So when you look globally, what we see is that for global north countries, when you look at the last 50 years, you have increased environmental degradation in many cases, but a very high GDP outcome of that. So you have a very strong capture of environmental resource into economic growth, and that translates into the benefits for those countries. For most other global south countries, what you see is that the rate of resource use and the rate of environmental degradation does not translate into GDP units. So you have an appropriation of resource without the benefits that are translated to development indicators. So that's a global reality where the narrative of economic growth, which guides policies in Brazil, in China, in the U.S., do not have equal outcomes for everybody. Today, perhaps more than a few years ago, that narrative is alive and well in the U.S. or in Brazil. That's what you see. You know, the environment becomes secondary to economic growth, but the social and environmental consequences are huge. How do you revert that? I mean, that's a huge question. But if I'm uh, going to reflect in terms of the Amazon, the, the way the economic chains are structured, you have the perpetuation of a system of extracting resource from the region, and the value added to those resources are proportional to the distance that they take from the region. That's acai and other products, meaning that the resources that are incredibly valuable and that justify economic policies, aggregate value very far away from where they are originated. And where they are originated, you have the consequence, right? You lose those resources, you have a lot of social consequences that become the scars of economic development. So one of the key elements, I think, to start reverting the kinds of social problems and environmental problems we have in the Amazon is to stop thinking about it as cheap nature, that you can appropriate and aggregate value elsewhere. The key problems of the region is that people that are there do not benefit from the kinds of economies that are taking place. Millions and millions of dollars circulate in terms of resources, and they're not able to capture a single cent of that because they go as raw materials from one place to another without leaving the opportunity for people to generate employment, to aggregate value, to produce in a way that doesn't degrade the resource. One of the things that is important in, that we try to call attention in the region is the importance of a transformative economy in the sense of an economy that aggregates values and that responds to the kinds of environmental and social limitations and problems that you have in a region without trying to appropriate everything one can the fastest way possible and move on to another. You know, we still have a lot of frontier mentalities in regions like the Amazon. You know, where's the idea of capture your resources as fast as possible, independent of the social consequence, independent of the environmental consequence, and that is socially sanctioned because it supposedly contributes to economic development. What's the lesson for the rest of the world from trying to make that adjustment? I think that gets back to the first question. You know, it's what are the social goals that we have? What are the environmental goals that we have? That should be the beginning of the conversation. 
not what is the rate of economic growth that we want for this year, but what are the social problems and environmental problems that we need to deal with? And what kinds of economic growth will help us to deal with those problems? You look at a region like the Amazon, it's an urban region. Most of the population are living in urban areas that are very recent. The vast majority of the population are extremely poor, living in conditions that are the worst possible. I mean, there are basically no sanitation in the 756 cities of the Amazon. The rate of violence in the region is enormous. And the kinds of environmental problems of the regions are becoming enormous. So those are the important issues to talk about in the Amazon. So how do we deal with the poverty? How do we deal with over 20 million people living in cities without almost any infrastructure and some of the highest rates of violence? How do you address the issues of the local indigenous populations, which are many? So talking about those things, recognizing and make those issues visible. And in the case of the Amazon, center our attention in the region. Because most of the conversation goes back to the beginning of the conversation when you're talking about El Dorado or the early economic cycles of the region. The region is seen as a resource for outsiders. And today we talk about the Amazon and its role in the global environment and protecting the Amazon to protect the global climate. All of those are important. But we cannot forget about the region. We cannot forget about the people of the region, of the environment of the region, of the things that we need to think about for the region. Just that change, you know, a concern with the region, with the problems of the region, would change the conversation. Eduardo Brondizio, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Eduardo Prondizio, Distinguished Professor of Anthropology at Indiana University Bloomington and Director of the Center for the Analysis of Social Ecological Landscapes. I'm Aaron Kane. Thanks for listening. Copies of this and other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The producer is Aaron Kane. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. The executive producer is John Bailey. Please join us next week for another edition of Profiles. Profiles.